Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. So today we're looking at nephrology, or the diagnosis and treatment of diseases of the kidney. We'll begin with a look at the history, and then speak to Professor Neil Turner about his experiences working as a nephrologist, and finish up with a historical case study. I'm not going to try and tell the whole history of diseases of the kidney throughout time. Instead, we're going to focus particularly on the 1700s, the period known as the Age of Enlightenment, a time when some really important changes were taking place. So first I'd like to say that for a long time, until well into the 1800s, it was very difficult to know what was happening inside a patient's body and whether the symptoms they had related to the kidney and therefore urinary disease or venereal disease or another internal complaint. So it is really hard to separate the history of diseases of the kidneys from the diseases of other internal organs. It was often only later, after the patient had died, when an autopsy was carried out, that the real cause of the patient's disease was known. In the 1700s, physical examination of patients was limited, usually for reasons of modesty or propriety, and there were no effective tools that could look inside the body to examine it more closely. Cutting a patient open to examine them was far too risky in a time before antiseptics or anaesthetic. You can't tell much by statistics. Studies of kidney and urinary complaints at institutions like the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh show the number of cases of inflammation of the kidney, incontinence of urine, and inflammation of the bladder are massively decreasing while what was termed uterine diseases went up. Some of these fluctuations were probably due to changes in systems of disease classification rather than any change in actual instances of particular symptoms or complaints. The terminology used to describe diseases was in a state of flux in the 1700s. New terms were developed, then discarded, and yet newer ones replaced them. According to doctors of the time, symptoms of kidney disease could be confused with a wide range of other complaints, including syphilis, rheumatism, tuberculosis, ulcers and gout. Over the course of the 1700s, urinary complaints were increasingly seen by many medical practitioners as not themselves distinct conditions, but rather as symptoms of separate diseases. In his book, 
titled A General System of Surgery, the German surgeon Lorenz Heister argued that urinary incontinence could be an indication that the patient suffered from bladder stones or another bladder-related condition. In the case of one Edinburgh dispensary patient, Frances Clark, the physician treating her identified the existence of a stone in her bladder, not only by her impeded urination, but by Clark's report of abdominal pains and the appearance of sand in her urine. According to the physician's notes, although this stone could be, quote, removed by cutting, Clark was unwilling to undergo this procedure. The physician went on, quote, of this mode of cure, then it is unnecessary to say any more before resorting to a range of medicines. Regardless of such concerns, over the course of the 1700s, surgical intervention increasingly became the preferred mode of treatment for this condition, rather than the prescription of medicines. Previously considered to be primarily the preserve of folk healers, Reputable surgeons who were known for their skill in the process of lithotomy began to rise to prominence, and hospitals employed such specialists in increasing numbers by the end of the century. But, for those like the Edinburgh dispensary patient who dreaded the idea of surgery, thankfully it was not the only option. Treatments for kidney disease, particularly kidney stones, were some of the most common recipes to be found in medical texts in the 1700s. William Buchan, a Scottish physician and fellow of our college, discussed kidney stones at length in his celebrated book titled Domestic Medicine. Buchan stated, quote, Bleeding, as far as the patient's strength will permit, is necessary. After bleeding, concoctions of warm water or mild vegetables should be created. Cloths dipped in these must be applied to the part affected. Kidney stones, according to Buchan, were caused by high living, the use of strong wines, a sedentary life, or an astringent or windy nature. He recommended food which promotes secretion of urine, including onions, leeks, and celery. The most proper drinks are milk, barley water, and licorice water. Every morning, the afflicted person should drink a pint of oyster water and eat an ounce of alicant soap, which was a type of soap made from olive oil. As well as used for kidney stones, it was also used in perfumes. Other treatments from around the same time were a little more appealing, with one from a book titled Taylor's Ready Doctor, recommending, quote, one pint of white wine and nutmeg and a little sugar to be drunk each morning. Although the same book contained another recipe for kidney stones, which involved dissolving 144 black snails in fortified wine. Another medical text from the 1700s recommended onions and hog's grease applied to the skin, vinegar to induce vomiting, eating almonds, burnt eggshells and wine, eating turpentine, butter and licorice. The household recipe book of Jane Taylor holds some similar ingredients, although at least in this case you weren't supposed to eat them. Quote, Take a handful of fresh butter, as much as a nut, and half as much black soap. Stamp and fry them, and make a plaster and lay them to the navel. So welcome, thank you for joining us, Neil. So could you just start off by just telling us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, thanks very much, Daisy. Um, so I'm Neil Turner and I've been professor of nephrology here in Edinburgh since 1998, so um, quite a few years now after a quite broad background in general medicine and a, a research spell in, in London when I did some really molecular things too. Thank you very much. So if we just start from the absolute sort of beginning or the absolute basics, how would you define your, your specialty, what it encompasses, you know, what it's all about? Yes, it's it's 
It's far more varied than I thought, um, and we'll, we'll maybe get a, a chance to talk about why I chose it, but um, I think to the public perception, kidney doctors uh, look after people with kidney disease and hopefully prevent them from needing dialysis and transplantation, but if they do, they also look after them then. And um, because that's been hived off into renal units, it's become quite far removed from everybody's experience, except that because transplantation and dialysis have been so successful, people are now bumping into those patients everywhere. So I think people are a, a little more aware of it, but it's still got a, an air of dark mystery around it, which, well, I hope we'll break through some of that in this conversation. Yes, well, very much hope so. I also wanted to ask you, um, and I don't want to make you feel old, but <laughs> over the course of your working life, how do you feel that nephrology has changed? You know, what, what sort of direction has it kind of gone in? Are there any major innovations that you can think of? Well, there have been quite a few major innovations, but I think the most... Um, the, the, the biggest change has just been the way, uh, just thinking of the way when I started uh, nephrology, the average age of patients were, was young. Um, and the ability to treat all the patients who needed it was seriously limited. And uh, the staffing on, on renal units was incredibly thin. You know, the workloads were um, dangerous or... or <laughs> at least very difficult, very, very difficult to manage. And the need for, for treatment was much greater than we could provide. And I think the greatest change has, has been, we aren't, we aren't in that position now. So we aren't in the position where we turn people down because there isn't treatment and people aren't being referred to us who might not, who, who might benefit. So um, that, that's a massive change. And of course, it's required quite a lot of changing in the way we've worked in order to achieve that. So I think, although this was well underway by the time I got into nephrology, one of the biggest shifts has been from a, a specialty which was almost entirely doctor-driven. It's really become multi-professional. So now there's a lot of nurse-led and other specialist-led aspects to the work. Whole dialysis units are, are nurse-led, and this would have been inconceivable. In, in, the, in the very early days. And I think a change that I, um, that really reflects the outpatient care and preventive uh, management of kidney diseases, I didn't think I would see in my professional lifetime a stabilization of the number of patients uh, on, on dialysis. But actually, we have seen that, um, particularly in Scotland in the last decade. The numbers of patients treated by dialysis has been stable or even falling and the reason it's falling is because more of them are transplanted so transplantation has just got better and better year by year as things have gone along and I guess that that improvement in transplantation has to be one of the key changes there have been others the ability to treat anemia and I would have to say the the availability of treatments to reduce the risk of kidney disease getting worse and needing dialysis. Thank you very much. That's fascinating. So we've done the past. So I guess we should talk about the future now. So, um, you know, with your sort of, you know, magic looking glass, where do you think, you know, nephrology is going to go? What are the changes going to be in 10 or 20 years time, do you think? Well, the news at the moment is full of these ideas that we're going to be able to put animal organs into people. But people have been 
you know, and, and, and remove the need for dialysis because we'll be able to do animal transplants. But I have to say that uh, I think that's still quite far off as a treatment and we're still going to be dependent on human transplantation. Um, I think that will continue to improve, which is fantastic news. Um, there haven't been massive, uh, no, no huge leaps in the way we treat patients who need dialysis actually since the 1980s and uh, small incremental improvements perhaps, but there have been and will continue to be, I think, real progress with preventing people from getting to end-stage renal disease. Um, of course, I, I mentioned that the dialysis population was stable, but the, the number of people we look after is increasing because people survive with transplants. So I, don't, I definitely don't see nephrologists being out of work, even if we do much better at um, preventing the rate at which people um, come into need dialysis. Well, that leads me on quite nicely, I think, to uh, the people who will be in work, which is, you know, the next generation of, of specialists. Yeah. So there may be people listening to this podcast who are at school thinking about, you know, going and studying medicine or who are currently studying medicine and thinking about how to specialize. So, you know, what would you recommend for those who are considering or open to the idea of nephrology? You know, what, what, are, what are the steps they should take to get there? So this is a... Um... Perhaps a more common question of junior doctors than from um, the general public, because unless you've got kidney disease in your family, it's not the first thing you think of when you um, wonder about being a doctor. Um, I, I always tell people there's no point in being a nephrologist unless you um, are good at and really enjoy general medicine because uh, once these patients are yours for life, all the health problems that they develop, you need to be uh, ready to look after and pass on or manage. Uh, it, it really is um, an extraordinary range, uh, right from almost being general practitioner type care for some patients to um, very long-term management of some difficult chronic diseases, some of which are just kidney disease, but patients have other conditions too uh, and they need management and it's it's usually the nephrologist who becomes the one who coordinates that care so you have to enjoy general medicine um, and you have to you have to like people because there are this cohort of, of, of patients that you look after very long term um, having said that once young people see nephrologists I think they mostly see a very engaged interested bunch of, uh, of doctors of every shape, size, gender uh, that, that you, can, you can imagine, almost all of whom look as if they feel they're doing something worthwhile and enjoying it. And uh, there's no, no better message than that. Thank you very much. That's yeah, no, that's really interesting. Although I like to think there is no medical specialty where they hate people, but you know. Um, yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> um, so I'm particularly interested in sort of how we got here, you know, the history side of, of, of medicine and, and of your specialty as well. So I'm interested, are there any moments from the history of medicine or, or people from the history of medicine that you find particularly inspiring? You know, it, it could be ancient Greece or Rome, or it could be 50 years ago, but is there anything that sort of sticks with you as being inspirational? Yeah. I, I, uh, 
with many specialties, it's of course sort of technique-based, isn't it? Um, I, I'm very interested in the history too, but it doesn't really go back to ancient Greece. You can stretch it. Um, no, really, um, un until uh, the 1950s, um, nephrology were, was a, a quite cerebral subject, and, and the main, mainly people, the, the nephrologists, were studying physiology. So what happens to salts and, and different circumstances and lots of, lots of complicated studies. But it was completely transformed by the invention of dialysis. Uh, and actually in the UK, there was quite a lot of resistance to taking on dialysis as a nephrologist. It's difficult to think who else would do that apart from kidney specialists, but there really, were, uh, there really was some resistance, particularly from some academic departments. Um, and therefore you have to say that in terms of historical figures, it's got to be Wilhelm Kolff, this amazing, uh, amazing doctor who, uh, under Nazi occupation in a district hospital, um, did experiments with dialysis on patients because there weren't any animal experiments to be done and, and, and eventually got his technique working and saved lives with dialysis. Um, so uh, the invention of dialysis was a big thing, but um, that was all for acute temporary kidney failure at that point. And I've mentioned already that a huge part of a nephrologist's work is, is patients with long-term disease. And I think if you had to pick out one character who made a, a massive impact on that, it would be Belding Scribner, who was a, an eccentric nephrologist in Seattle who uh, lived on a houseboat for a good part of his life and raised lots of money um, from benefactors in order to make some of these early treatments possible. And in, in 1961, he brought a patient to uh, a kidney meeting just to show that, that this was completely new to people at that time, just to show that you could keep people alive for more than a few weeks. Uh, in other words, that it was a treatment that could be used for long-term for chronic kidney disease. And uh, it was quite difficult for people at that point who were struggling to deal with acute renal failure, acute kidney injury with their complicated dialysis machines to think how on earth this could become a long-term treatment. But here was someone who believed it could and was prepared to stand up and say so. It was a pretty amazing moment. Thank you. So I have a feeling that I maybe can already guess what your answer to my next question is going to be. But this is something that I, again, I'm quite, quite enthusiastic about. So imagine for a moment that we have a museum of medicine <coughs> and every single specialty has an object which summarizes or, or gives insight into that specialty. What is your one object for nephrology? Well, you're right. It probably is a dialysis machine. Um, what else could it be? Well, it, you know, I think the, the other thing which has made such an enormous, huge difference is, is transplantation, but I'm not sure, apart from a kidney, what you display for that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll maybe stick with the dialysis machine and not try <laughs> sourcing a, a human kidney at the moment. Um, um, so you've talked quite a lot about, you know, your experiences and, and recommendations for how to get into to nephrology. So what do you think ultimately makes a good nephrologist? What makes people good at your specialty? There used to be a, um, a sort of jokey interview panel question in which um, uh, it was suggested that, is, the, is there a question that you could ask uh, 
someone that off off topic that would really show whether or not they were suitable for your specialty. And the one for nephrology was, do you keep your bank statements? <laughs> and it's true. In the days when we did have paper bank statements, most nephrologists I asked the, this question to did have their bank statements going back for more than a decade, and in some cases 30 or 40 years. But uh, it's that's interesting. So clearly they have to... Uh, have very long-term interest in in how things go, and the things isn't money in a in an account. It's it's actually patients. So I think yeah, I think it is being interested and and caring about this particular bunch of patients struggling with really difficult circumstances through through thick and thin. Thank you. No, the the bank statement question is fascinating. I I wouldn't have thought <laughs> of it, but yes, having a no. long-term view, yeah, that mm. makes. That makes a lot of sense. So um, I'm afraid my final question is the sort of inevitable question. So we're talking in February 2022, and so we can't not mention the mm. COVID pandemic. So I'm interested, you know, how has this impacted on, on your work? How has this impacted, do you think, on your on your specialty more generally? Yeah, it's been um, a, a really uh, difficult time for everybody, hasn't it? The... Um, uh, clearly, in the particularly in the first wave, many of us uh, were part of the people who were moved over to help with coping with the enormous number of admissions. So some some colleagues were right in there in the high dependency areas, looking after patients who were at the very extreme end of of uh, treatment, um, and others were were trying to keep the service running uh, despite. The depleted numbers and the more difficult circumstances and as the uh, epidemic pandemic extended that latter problem really began to cause increasing trouble um, it, it turned out that many of our patients were very vulnerable so, um, all our transplant patients are immunosuppressed our dialysis patients turned out to be at least as vulnerable as the transplant patients. And many patients with chronic kidney disease were at some increased risk as well. Some of them because of the drugs they were on and some of them just because of their, their renal impairment. So there was that aspect. Um, but there was also the difficulty of following people up. And I think it's undoubtedly been the case that we've had a number of mishaps because patients were not followed up as frequently because they were followed up remotely and we were therefore missing things or they were not telling us things that we would have picked up if we'd seen them in person. Um, and some of the uh, work, really, really important work to keep people well and prevent them from getting um, progressive kidney disease. Well, we missed out on improving the management of quite a lot of patients across two years. Um, by seeing them less often, by them not getting referred, and you know, it, when when we think of memorable patients, there's nothing worse than um, people you know having some sort of disaster. And actually, there's been a lot of that in the last two years. Um, people who should not have reached end stage renal disease, who who had to start dialysis, um, transplants that uh, failed or or had some mishap because of missed treatment or missed rejection and so on as well as the direct consequences of covid so tough and we really really do hope we're near the end of that i think we have got back to uh, a much better 
mode of managing um, the, the, the patients in these circumstances, but actually we've achieved that by really pushing to have more face-to-face -face appointments again. So we've changed to some degree um, to continue more remote monitoring, and, and probably those have been advantages, but I think we also appreciate the limitations of that kind of care. Well, thank you so much, Neil. That was really fascinating. Thank you very much indeed, Daisy. A pleasure. Our patient case study today is Maria Schafstadt. In 1945, Maria was a 67-year-old widow who had been imprisoned for collaborating with the Nazis. In that year, 1945, she became a patient of Dr. Wilhelm Kolff. Kolff was a Dutch physician whose development of what he called an artificial kidney, what we now know as dialysis, revolutionised the treatment of kidney disease. Kolff was not the first to theorise that such a tool could be developed, but he was the first to successfully put it into practice. Kolff's work had faltered once before, when key individuals at the university where he worked were replaced by Nazi sympathisers. He moved from there to a hospital in a small remote town. The tools he had available for the development of the world's first functioning kidney dialysis machine were limited. He used orange juice cans, bed slats, a bathtub, and parts from the radiator of an abandoned car and from a downed Luftwaffe airplane. There was no blood pump as such. A rotating drum, along with gravity, moved the blood out of the patient and then back again. On the 11th of September 1945, after the Netherlands had been liberated, the comatose Maria was brought from prison to Kampen Hospital, where Kolf worked with end-stage renal disease. Kolf had trialled his prototype dialysis machine on other patients previously, but without success. After 11 hours, Maria awoke from her coma, and seven days later her kidneys were fully functional. Maria was the first patient whose life had been saved by dialysis. Maria died seven years later of an illness unconnected to kidney disease. Kolf, widely considered to be the father of artificial organs, emigrated to the United States in the 1950s. He received many honorary doctorates and awards during his lifetime. Kolf donated the five dialysis machines he created to hospitals across the world. He also gave a set of blueprints for his dialysis machine to another researcher based at Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston. This led to the manufacture of a much more advanced dialysis machine, the Kolf Brigham machine. For the first time, there was an effective treatment available for acute renal failure. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage. And we have a Just Giving page, rcpeheritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.